Hello, everyone, and welcome to Next Off of Victory Briefs podcast. I'm Lawrence, joined by Chris and Jacob. This week, we have a special guest, Marshall Thompson. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm the director of curriculum at the Victory Briefs Institute, and I'm currently getting my PhD in philosophy at Florida State University, where I study the intersection of ethics and the nature of persons, and in particular, the philosophy of Elizabeth Anscombe, which is not used nearly enough in debate. I debated, finished debating in 2011, doing Lincoln-Douglas debate, and have coached on and off since then. All right, well, thank you for coming on. We are a podcast discussing all things circuit Lincoln-Douglas debate. We publish new episodes every other week. And this is our seventh episode where we'll be discussing the September-October topic. Before we discuss it, we just wanted to remind our listeners that we have a Google form linked in the description where you can submit feedback or suggestions for future topics. Finally, thanks to Victory Briefs for sponsoring this podcast. Victory Briefs is a summer debate institute and publisher of debate materials, which you can learn more about at victorybriefs.com. All right, let's discuss this topic after this short break. All right, so the September-October LD topic is resolved in a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. And I believe this is the topic that Nails and I thought was the best from the previous episode. And so sorry to you, Chris, that your proportional rep topic didn't eventually win out. Um, I, I am totally on board with this. It is a topic we chose for VBI, so I'm all good to go. That is fair. Um, I wonder if anyone had to look at the back end of the votes and like how low proportional rep was. I'm willing to bet like 5% of people voted for it, um, if that many. But uh, all right, so what we'll do is we'll just kind of discuss the background of this topic and then just sort of meander through aff and neg arguments as well as our sort of thoughts and predictions on how this topic will play out. So uh, does anyone want to sort of start us off with a background of like what compulsory voting is? So compulsory voting, as the name suggests, just means that you're required to vote. But there's a few things that people might not recognize at first glance. The first is a perhaps more accurate term for it would be something like compulsory balloting or compulsory turnout, which are actually terms you'll see show up occasionally as sort of synonyms for compulsory voting. And that's because in basically every democracy, voting is ultimately secret. You know, they can't tell who you voted for or anything like that. And so even if they tell you you have to vote, you could easily show up and cast a blank ballot or a spoiled ballot rather than voting for one of the two candidates. And there'd be no way to verify otherwise. So the first misconception people might have is that oh, you're like denying the possibility of like uh, third party candidates or you're making people choose one of two options. And that's not the case. Uh, you're, you're not forcing anyone to do that because they could always just like secretly fill out a blank ballot and no one would be the wiser. What you are forcing people to do is show up on election day, show up and like perform the electoral function of voting, whether validly or invalidly. And then the second thing that I think is perhaps a little bit non-obvious is what the uh, enforcement mechanism is. You, know, you might think, oh no, like you go to jail or something like that if you don't vote. But in general, the penalties in countries that have this, such as Australia and Belgium and so forth, tend to be a lot less severe than that. It's often a small fine, like 20 euros or something like that. Uh, and you know, perhaps if you like consistently not pay that, there might be a larger penalty. In, Bel in Belgium, for example, ironically, if you consistently fail to vote, you can actually lose your right to vote. Like if you don't vote in four elections straight, uh, then for the next 10 years, you don't have the ability to vote. But it rarely is it something particularly substantial. In some Latin American countries, it might be, for example, that you lose the ability to run for public office if you didn't yourself vote. But you're not going to be uh, seeing things like felony prison time or something like that. And in fact, in a few places, this being, I think, most common in Latin American countries where compulsory voting is somewhat frequent um, amongst the countries, 
uh, you'll find that there might be little or no penalty at all. And that compulsory voting is sort of nominally a law, but it's just like sort of not really enforced. Uh, and so it's like a, almost like a, an entirely superficial and yet existent law that it says you have to vote. Uh, so the penalties vary from basically non-existent to modest. And it's just giving people like an extra oomph to get out and vote. And that, that's sort of the core concept. All right. I feel like, as we mentioned on the previous episode, this is about the most straightforward topic that there is. Is there any other like random background issues that you think should get settled before we just jump into the app and nagargs? Uh, well, I think the, the issue that might be a little bit stickier and people will try to exploit is that sort of in a democracy prepositional phrase and what that means. Ah, all right. So in a democracy, I guess, might be uncharitably interpreted by some to mean that in any given democracy I so pick, it ought to be the case that voting is compulsory. That to me seems like the incorrect reading of this topic, but does anyone want to like talk through why that is not in fact what this topic means? Yeah, sure. I share the same intuition that you do, Lawrence. In a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. Does not read to me as <laughs> there is at least one democracy out there that should have compulsory voting. Uh, and we're just figuring out wh which one that is. Although that, you know, that is often a meaning of A, the indefinite article, that just means like there, there exists one of these things. Uh, it seems perfectly clear to me that in this context, as with most LD resolutions, it's just suggesting sort of like a, a broader statement about democracies in general. Uh, for example, like if I said, uh, a tiger has stripes, you wouldn't be like, which tiger? Tony the tiger? Some other tiger? Well, you'd think, you know, I'm, I'm talking about sort of the general principles of tigers. And so, yeah, I don't think there's any exception here. Well, we don't have the, the, the classic tried and true bare plurals that most LG resolutions have. I think what we have here is an indefinite singular noun phrase, which will function very, very similarly. And so I would expect to see topicality debates where the AF tries to argue, oh, well, it technically says a democracy, so I can read my, like, Pakistan plan. And then the neg says, that's not how that works. And I don't think that debate's going to die on this topic. Despite the lack of bare plurals, I, what do you think the over-under on number of debates where a bare plural is invoked as a reason why an AF can't run a plan? People will assert that democracy is a bare plural despite Correct. not being plural or bare. <laughs> <laughs> a related question I've been uh, wondering about a little bit is voting is a pretty broad term and covers lots of different types of ways we vote. In particular, I found uh, one article at least that suggests that uh, the author defends that voting in elections ought to be compulsory, but voting for referenda should not. And it's not totally clear to me if such a position, suppose that's true sort of across the board in general in democracies, voting in elections should be compulsory and voting in referenda should be voluntary, if that means it's true that voting ought to be compulsory. Uh, for instance, these two statements seem contradictory to me. In a democracy, voting ought to be compulsory. In a democracy, voting ought to be voluntary. But it also seems to me that if we can prove it true that voting ought to be compulsory because voting elections ought to be compulsory, then we should be able to prove it true that voting ought to be voluntary because voting in referenda are voluntary. But this suggests then that maybe you can't just prove that voting in elections ought to be voluntary would prove the sentence true. Uh, for what it's worth, I was talking with Jake Niebel about this and he thinks that it's just completely wrong and that you could prove it true that voting ought to be compulsory if election should be compulsory because compulsory is a sort of positive thing, while voluntary is just not compulsory and so subject to much stricter standards and the mm -hmm. way generics work. But I think it's at least unclear what the sort of scope of what degree of voting needs to be compulsory counts for the resolution. To clarify the objection you were stating a second ago to your own view that Jacob put forth, you're saying that voting ought to be voluntary is false in a society where there is some compulsory and some voluntary voting. Because right. to meet the condition of voting being voluntary, there has to just like not exist any compulsory voting. Right. In the same way, ducks lay eggs is true. Ducks don't lay eggs is false, even though all female ducks lay eggs and all male ducks don't lay eggs. Uh, to say ducks mm -hmm. don't lay eggs is something much more expansive than to say ducks lay eggs. 
likewise, Jake thinks it's plausible that to say voting ought to be voluntary is to say something like it ought not, to, right? Like this is then different if it was like voting ought to be prohibited. So if it turns out you should be required to vote in elections and prohibited from voting in referenda, which, right, like that doesn't make any sense, but right, then it might be disproven. But because voluntary is just not compulsory or prohibited, Jake thinks you might be able to make an argument that uh, the positive condition supersedes the negative condition here. I've not thought much about this. That strikes me as the most intuitive reading. To what extent would you think that would meaningfully influence debate rounds? Like other than someone specking elections and not referendum? Well, I think it also matters for a pick, right? Like I I do think the sort of like picking out of referenda counterplan is pretty strong because this article makes a pretty good point. It's like a much higher burden on people to make them like thoroughly research the particulars of policy things such that forcing people to vote in referenda might just make, like, like, yeah, might just make less sense than... If anyone has seen a referenda ballot in California, I think it immediately becomes intuitive. They are all phrased in very tricky ways to make it extremely unclear which side you're voting for. <laughs> um, when I lived in LA last year, there was an animal rights uh, referenda that half of all animal rights groups were on one side and half were on the other because there was complete disagreement over what the text of the referenda actually did. Uh, and I felt completely unqualified to make that decision. Right. And so this seems like a pretty strong pick if the app is defending voting, it has to defend something like voting in general. And so whether or not it indeed negates, I think is, I think it's less useful. I think, you know, it's going to be less likely this happens, the AF specs elections and the neg reads topicality. I think it's much more likely the app doesn't say anything about the subject. The neg's like, oh, I've got this brilliant pick people aren't ready for. And then does the app actually need to, like, like does this actually pick out of what the app defends by affirming, I think is a sort of interesting question. Yeah, I agree with that. That makes sense. A very related uh, question that came up in a practice debate I was just judging at camp was, you know, the app defends compulsory voting and the negative reads the sortition counter plan. Or it's that, that variant, actually, that you put together, Lawrence, the one that's like, rather than directly elect the leaders via a lottery system, what you do is sort of have a, a random subset of the population vote. So choose like 20,000 people and say, these 20,000 people randomly chosen have the right to vote. Uh, and then you give them some incentive to vote, e.g. like you pay them some sum of money uh, to guarantee that they'll vote. And the, the benefits are essentially, it's a lot easier to, to get 20,000 people to vote than 300 million people to vote. And if you have a suitably random sample and a large enough sample size like 20,000, then statistically you're almost certain to get a relative representative opinion of like the population as a whole. Uh, the issue was the AF argues, oh, well, sure, let's do that, but just mandate that those 20,000 people vote. <laughs> That's still compulsory voting. And the next like, well, no, 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 I'm picking out of like 98% of people, <laughs> or more than that. Uh, you know, like all, almost all people not only are not obligated to vote, but cannot vote, they legally cannot vote anymore in the world of this sortition counter plan. And then the app is just saying, well, no, compulsory voting doesn't mean like everyone has to vote. It just means if you are eligible to vote, then it is also mandatory to vote. And at least in that debate, like, yeah, the app had like an intuitive plausibility to it, but it's not like totally obvious to me whether compulsory voting is consistent with like 20,000 people out of a 300 million person country being obligated to vote. I think this is one of those cases where, like if the resolution was something like the United States should institute, like democracy should institute a system of compulsory voting, it'd be pretty clear that counter plan does not affirm just because compulsory voting is a term of art, which definitely doesn't, isn't used anywhere in the literature to mean all like just that the eligible voting population, right? Like, like it definitely means like requiring all enfranchised grownups Etc. Vote, 
Um, but voting not to be compulsory is like explicitly not using the term of art in a way that I think makes it more plausible for the app here that that is a legitimate reading of what the topic says. Um, like you are indeed compelling people to vote. And it would seem really weird, you know, like, you know, in the same way saying children should not be compelled to vote doesn't seem to negate the resolution. It's unclear that like the mere number of people who are or are not compelled to vote is particularly relevant to whether or not voting should be compulsory or not. Yeah, I think the problem that I have for the negative, like, in, 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 there does seem to be something about saying, oh, look, the vast majority of people literally cannot vote and the world of the counterplan should make it competitive. But at the same time, there's this line drawing problem of like, well, obviously, large groups of people still can't vote in the afterworld under any possible reading, like children or maybe people who aren't citizens or otherwise right. disenfranchised. And like large majority is not quite enough to get the linguistic question because yeah. this counterplan is also not competitive. Uh, like somehow the U.S. federal government has you know, 600 million children. So just now it is the case that the vast majority of people are ineligible to vote. That also would not disprove the resolution. Even if you could somehow, you know, make it so there's just like far more children who do not have the right to vote. That like couldn't possibly be relevant to whether or not uh, voting should be compulsory or not. Fascinating. Uh, I had not thought that deeply about the sortition counterplan and as it relates to compulsory voting, other than the fact that I thought it was an interesting counterplan to throw out there. Um, All right, so... App arguments then for this topic? It seems like just most of the app literature just points out something wrong with low turnout and in particular low and unequal turnout. It seems like most of the app arguments are gonna be somewhere in this vein and they'll, they'll describe various problems with low and unequal turnout. So like lack of representation, lack of legitimacy, sort of views like that. Is there any place in particular in this low and unequal turnout category we wanna start with? I guess the first thing that I would say about it is I think the literature seems pretty aft leaning on the empirical question of whether compulsory voting does in fact increase turnout. Uh, it, it turns out that if, if you <laughs> mandate that someone does something, they're more likely to do that thing. And so the app will likely win the link to turnout. And so I think the big strategic question facing the affirmative when constructing the app is just trying to decide like, what's the best way to impact out why this matters? Like why is turnout good? And I think a decent portion of that might happen at the level of like the ethical framework. And so I think this to be perhaps more so than others might encourage people to, to delve into um, maybe like interesting political philosophies and so forth. Because for the AF, I think it'll be less about winning the empirics debate. I think that that contentious level debate will, will happen, but the AF will just be right. And so it's a matter of like setting up the terms of the debate such that whatever the impact of turnout is, it outweighs whatever negative arguments to the contrary exist. Yeah, I was going to say, from what I've been seeing, like looking over cases and editing cases so far, is that the best affirmatives are one that have a sort of two-part way of impacting out the representation claim. One is, you know, more equal representation uh, is in some sort of intrinsic way better for democracy, right? Like this just means that every group is sort of properly able to act as legislator or is able to sort of represent the democratic equality in the polis or is able to be part of self-governance or is included in the like whatever sort of account you want but then you also want just the sort of empirical literature that says when more people vote the result is more liberal policies and this promotes sort of substantive equality as well and it seems to me the best apps are ones that sort of say we increase turnout and then have two different ways to impact out equality of turnout one uh which is sort of this preclusive almost deontological kind of claim about representativeness being essential to what democracy should be. And another that says the substantive impacts of representation is more liberal policies. And here are a bunch of reasons why more liberal policies are good for substantive lives. I think a lot of the apps I've seen are basically only doing that second thing. They're basically only saying this will result in policies which promote sort of like income equality and things like that. And the problem with that is 
no one, as far as I can tell, is nearly deep enough on this debate, such that if someone else just spent, you know, 10 hours cutting a whole bunch of conservative economists saying these policies are actually terrible long term, like the impact on strategy seems pretty compelling against the sort of like in order to sort of mitigate against that sort of impact on strategy as being overly effective against this app. I think the sort of dance logical framing combined with it gives you more flexibility in how you go about responding. The other strategic concern that seems really relevant to these arguments is being prepared for the counter plan. These positions are usually based on there are existing barriers to voting that create discriminatory uh, turnout. And there's a lot of counter plans out there, uh, like a combo platter of national holiday for elections, universal mail-in voting, universal registration, et cetera, et cetera, which tried to uh, decrease a lot of those barriers and increase turnout without the coercion of compulsory voting. Yeah, I think the, the, the thing that Marshall is describing actually, well, it depends on the counter plan, but we'll at least have sort of, it'll give the app an additional bulwark against at least some of those counter plans. So for example, like the lotteries counter plan or something like that. It just tries to ensure that the decision is made accurately to solve the sort of instrumental benefit of voting correctly or voting for the best policies. You know, if we just have 20,000 people vote, they might make the same decision as if all 300 million people voted. But if the benefit of voting is not just like arriving at the same or the correct decision, but is, for example, getting people to participate in their own governance, then that counter plan, you know, severely fails. There's a related sort of tension here in the ways a lot of affirmatives are sort of set up as far as I've seen them so far, which is they have this sort of combination of two things. One, local representation is important because individual people really know what sort of political participation is best for them, right? Like, it's not good if it's just the sort of elites who vote, even if the elite, because like, like most people, it just says like, you know, elite academics don't vote to help elite academics. They really vote for what they think is best for society. But the sort of problem is we probably think that elite academics do not have a great sense of what's actually best for these, right, for everyone in society. And so what you want is something like the, the, the real way these sort of apps are compelling and intuitive level is, you know, we actually want all these perspectives to be actively included uh, sort of for the substance. The problem is that framing can't be too dominant as far as the sort of consequential impacts, because then any good negative is going to stand up and be like, oh, you're right. We definitely should trust people to assess what political participation is best for them. So maybe don't force them into the political participation that you as a mm -hmm. random high school student think this is what's going to help minority communities suddenly engage adequately politically. I have the solution. We're going to force them to do so coercively. Like there's a sort of tension uh, between mm -hmm. these communities know best and I'm going to force these communities to do what's best for them. Uh, which I've seen in a lot of apps so far. And the way to resolve this is to say, it's not actually about the sort of, it was not primarily about the sort of positive substantive policies that come across, but instead making sure our democracy is one that is sort of responsive to, or, or sort of is inclusive of these various judgments and perspectives, irrespective of what the actual sort of effect that has on final policy or who gets elected or things of that sort. Yeah, Marshall, the inclusion of sort of the substantive policy outcomes of certain voting systems in combination with arguments about democracy being important, the substantive nature of democracy seems very strange to me um, because sort of picking our electoral system or our procedures based on policy outcomes does seem fundamentally anti-democratic to me in some ways. It says these procedures should be changed or thrown out if they don't lead to the outcomes we wanted, right? So would it be the case that if universal voting led to conservative outcomes, we just shouldn't have universal voting? Does it then follow that if voting has conservative outcomes, we shouldn't have voting. Uh, that seems to be like a, a potential tension in a lot of these arguments. Like I think by so, these different strands. Right. 
I, I would agree there's a tension, but only insofar as these apps are not built with a sort of lexical priority, right? Mm -hmm. So if it just is the case that, is there a sort of concern of democratic norm that says we need everyone to, right? Like, so, so uh, I was recently talking um, with one of my mentees about this book, uh, The Constitution of Equality by Thomas Cristiano. He's one of these sort of democratic political philosophers. He defends this account of democracy as primarily about sort of an equal inclusion of everyone's judgment for how to use this common world for their good, right? So he moves from this sort of conception of equality of well-being to this idea that we need a sort of equality of judgment about this common world that we live in. And what Cristiano says is like, this is the only adequate explanation of democracy. Like you cannot use the fact that democracies will have better policies as an adequate justification if you want a sort of deep, philosophically robust notion of democracy. But suppose that Cristiano will convince his argument just doesn't work and none of the intrinsic arguments for democracy work, right? There just like is no in itself reason why democracy is better. I don't think he would then think, well, at that point, I'm still committed to democracy such that it would be undemocratic to use the substantive consideration, right? No, like the claim is these sort of procedural considerations have lexical priority over the substantive ones. But if it turns out there is not a sort of substantive issue at stake here, a sort of procedural issue at stake here, then you sort of devolve down to the substantive questions. So if you are losing the framework debate and your opponent is going for these util arguments, right, then you can devolve out these arguments in terms of util impacts or things like that. And so I think as long as you maintain a sort of internal priority into the logic of the case, you can be very clear that no, look, like you, could you also, and this just makes good sense strategically because the easiest part of this case to turn is impact turns to liberal policies bad, or liberal policies good. And so you just want to be very clear from the outset, these do not turn the framework. If it turns out the framework doesn't work, these still have sort of important independent moral content to them. But I do think you'd want to keep those uh, claims separate. I did already judge a debate where, actually more than one debate, where the neg read like some version of the politics DA, like this flips the 2020 elections. And if you just sort of like unpack that argument in the context of the resolution, it, it, it's very, very explicitly just like, there's a bunch of people who are going to vote away we don't like. So let's explicitly avoid enfranchising them so as to rig a particular election in favor yeah. of a party that we do like. And if you just state it in plain terms, it kind of sounds like the exact sort of political corruption is like, like corruption good is, is the thesis of the DA uh, in a way that does seem like it should be a, you know, like a, a compelling argument in favor of the app framework there or against the, the whatever frame of the negative is using to make that a, a good thing rather than a bad thing. Definitely. But at the same time, could you imagine a situation in which right now, in the midst of, you know, conspiracy mongering, fear mongering from the president about rigged ballots for mail-in voting and it's all a conspiracy, if somehow magically a compulsory voting scheme was put into place, uh, the kind of paranoia and, you know, like political violence that would be whipped up this happened in September? <laughs> Or a week before the election when people are still debating this topic? Well, no, this is just why the resolution in democracy voting not to be compulsory is not the same thing as Correct. every democracy any time that is currently not compulsory voting should institute a compulsory voting system. Debaters ought to give to charity does not mean always and at every moment debaters should be giving money to charity. And I think the app wants to be clear about what the app actually, and this is like, I think there's like good substantive reasons, in fact, on this topic to not specify a country or a time or anything like that. I think this is one of the few topics where it's actively not strategic to do so. Yeah, I've been thinking about this. A lot of the critiques people read these days, right, often get, right, like a lot of the sort of positions I've been seeing critique-wise about, you know, the illegitimacy of American democracy and things like this, just all have a lot of very, very U.S. history-specific links about them. And to the extent the app can just say, 
we're not talking about the United States in any meaningful sense, uh, I think is in a much better position against a lot of dissents and critiques and things of that sort. And criticality. Yeah, I, I feel like it, even if I knew that the negative just would not read topicality no matter what I did, what I did the U.S. specific plan just seems a lot less strategic to me than the, the non-U.S. specific defense of the resolution. Uh, yeah, I was about to say something very similar to what Marshall was saying, which is I'm not convinced that like an argument like the politics is said is just like in this one election of this one country, it would be bad, does actually count as valid negative ground on this topic. Like there, there's a related concern that I guess it's worth distinguishing from, which is this like implementation versus no implementation thing that I think is just a red herring everyone likes to bring up where there, there were occasionally topics back in the day like, I think JanFeb 2013 was the one that really got the ball rolling in this thing, <laughs> where it was actually kind of ambiguous whether, like, the topic was describing a policy at all. That topic was, it was something to the effect of, like, in the United States criminal justice system, rehabilitation ought to be valued above retribution. And so it's unclear whether the app is sort of defending a change in policy or maybe just sort of, like, the relevant actors in that institution, like, change their mindset, which, again, even if you adopt, adopted that view, would likely result in some change in policies. Uh, but then people take things that are straightforwardly policies like compulsory voting, which is just a description of a law or like press privilege when that was the topic or whatever, eliminate nukes. And like, do you defend the policy of eliminate nukes or like the value statement of eliminate nukes? And it, it, is, it is, I think, pretty unambiguously that the topic is about like, should this action be undertaken? Um, that being said, that doesn't mean the same thing as like right now, this policy gets passed in like every single democracy simultaneously or, or something like that. It is sort of more a general statement about like in democratic context, would this action be a good one to undertake? And so arguments like, ah, all consequentialist arguments don't link because I don't actually implement anything don't make sense. But something like this dissat is localized to one particular case and isn't generalizable does strike me as a valid F response to dissents like that. So other philosophical arguments on the topic that, have come that I've come across that seem worth discussing. So I think the first one is like the free writing problem that might deserve its own little segment. Anyone want to talk about the free writing problem? Sure. So I think the best way to think about free writing is to note what I think Chris said, which was correct. The best answer or the best strategy against a lot of these representation asks is just to say, look, adopt a whole bunch of democratic reforms, which are going to increase access to voting. Then at that point, right, you might think, okay, suppose we could actually equalize representation. There might still be a moral concern here. And the moral concern is from a standpoint of rational self-interest, it actually just doesn't make a lot of sense for most people to vote. Like, I think it probably does make sense for like me to vote, but that's just because I get like filled with an irrational sense of civic pride and like personal <laughs> pleasure I get from voting uh, and like feeling smugly superior to all the other economists people in the philosophy department, like, you know, justifies the activity. But it's not actually that I think my vote makes any difference or I have any like, reason to vote except like satisfying my smug sense of superiority. Um, and so the problem here is that we don't really as a society like a situation where the sort of people who let others do their part for the common good and skirt the obligation themselves accrue a personal benefit for doing so. Uh, you know, this sort of exists across the board. So you can think about this in terms of pollution, for example, right? And suppose like currently there's a big problem that, you know, wealthy people pollute a whole lot more than poor people do. They use a whole lot more carbon, they use a whole lot more electricity, and they don't pay the 
have their fair share. And suppose we could like reform this, right? And we could reform it. So across the different groups is now pretty equal, right? Like rich people are not using, or at least they're compensating for the uh, increased amount of carbon they use, and right? But still within those groups, there are some people who are doing their fair share and other people who are still sort of polluting unnecessary amount. There's something unfair there, not because there's a sort of unequal representation between groups, but just because some members of these groups have to do a, uh, are taking on a burden for the whole group in order to ensure that representation. And so you might think that part of what democracy and part of what government is designed to do fundamentally is really to resolve these free rider problems to resolve the sort of tragedy of the commons where it's in everyone's rational self-interest to exempt themselves from a policy, which is generally good for most people to engage in. And if you think that that's one of the core things that government should do, which a lot of political philosophers do, then you might think that this is one of those cases. And they would require sort of two elements. First, uh, the thought that it is good or important in democratic society that many vote. Combined with, it's in each person's rational self-interest for the most part to not vote. You might think these two things together create a sort of in principle claim, not to like groups get adequate representation, but rather so that like people in, within groups are not sort of being unfairly exploited by other members within their same groups who are not doing their fair share for the cause, uh, whatever that cause happens to be. And I think this is probably like this, when I coached this topic back in what fall of 2013 or whenever it was, uh, this was the ad that my debater ended up, like we wrote several ads and this was the one we just like ran, that he ended up running almost every round because he just converged on this one is by far the most difficult argument for negatives to answer. Uh, it, it turned out a lot more effective than the representation quality sort of ad that was the other sort of main one we prepped and worked on. I think it's worth noting that despite the fact that this argument is, uh, as you say, the one that you converged on, the main author on this topic for the AF, Lisa Hill, for some reason just like dedicates less than two paragraphs to this in the book, Compulsory Voting For and Against, and it's just like, I don't find this particularly compelling, and then just kind of like moves on from it. But there are a bunch of other AF authors that do uh, find the free writing problem to be one of the stronger arguments. And I, I feel like the last sort of main uh, AF argument that's worth discussing is like, these sort of different models of liberty and freedom as contrasted between like the non-domination model versus the non-interference model that we discussed in the demo debate a little bit as well as during the topic analysis. Um, I feel like this might be kind of a, a big philosophical conflict on the topic. Does anyone want to sort of talk about what that is and like how that might be deployed in debate rounds? I'm happy to talk about it, but I want to start by saying I think Florence, the way you set it up is a little off. Right. The non-domination stuff is interesting, but I think is not the essential dispute concerning liberty that's at stake. So um, Isaiah Berlin has this famous paper, and I'm blanking on the name, Two Concepts of Liberty okay. by Isaiah Berlin. It's this sort of like book length, like short book length, sort of extended article. Um, and in it, he distinguishes negative liberty and positive liberty. Negative liberty is largely something like freedom from interference, right? Making sure that other people do not stop you from doing what you choose. Positive liberty, in contrast, is something like being self-governing or in control of your own life. Uh, and you can think about a sort of contrast here if you imagine a sort of drug addict who's sort of utterly compelled by her addiction. And the result of being utterly compelled by her addiction is that she is able to freely in society get all the drugs she wants and use them, but is unable to pursue any of her deep life plans, like becoming a, the hedge fund manager she always dreamed of being or becoming the philosopher she always dreamed of being or whatever it happened to be. And so Isaiah Berlin says, look, if you look through the sort of history of philosophy, lots of philosophers have talked about these two different types of liberty, and you end up with very, very different sort of political proposals depending on which one you defend. So the classical liberals, people like 
John Stuart Mill, they just like only believed in negative liberty. Like negative liberty was what freedom was for them. In contrast, people like Marx or Hegel or Rousseau had this idea that was much more about sort of positive liberty. Liberty was about sort of self-governance. And it was about self-governance both for the individual and for society. Because there's a very clear tension, right? Like, if you, right, so like a, a, a lot of people think that like there's an important sense in which you want like sovereign nations, like sovereign peoples to be able to legislate for themselves. But it also is the case that to the extent that we want a sovereign nation to legislate for itself is to the extent the individual people in that society are going to be less free. Right. Um, this is a sort of direct tension between the negative liberty of individuals and the positive liberty of a people to sort of self-legislate and govern. And so people who prioritize either, right, the thought that, you know, self-liberty means being in control of your life and this requires sort of robust paternalistic government action to empower us to be able to effectively lead the lives we want to lead deep down or who think that this is a sort of positive liberty as a society, which we want to sort of be self-governing and representative of the population. It creates this sort of uh, view on which freedom actually requires a great deal of coercion. The classic line here is uh, Rousseau says in his book, The Social Contract, uh, that people who refuse to submit to the general will must be forced to be free. Because Rousseau, sort of positive liberty, requires entering into civic political participation in a certain way. Like you are not a free member of a self-governing community. You don't sort of actualize the full degrees of human freedom without participating in uh, the general will. And so Rousseau thinks we need to force people into that uh, civil condition. And it's actually appropriate for their freedom uh, is a freeing act to force them into that condition. And so this, I think, is the sort of deep philosophical disagreement on this topic, where a lot of affirmatives probably have a much more sort of positive view of liberty, and a lot of negatives have a much more negative view of liberty. This thing contrasts with the distinction between civic republicans who care about freedom as non-domination in both of these views. And one way to see that is civic republicans don't think that freedom is a question of the freedom of an individual choice. So both positive and negative liberty, what's free or not is an individual choice you make. So my choice to use drugs is what's free or not, or my choice to choose left or right when making this turn, or my choice for who to vote to. The individual choice is what's free. For the circuit Republican, it's not an individual choice that's free. Instead, freedom is a sort of status that you have in relation to other people. So for example, I could be making all my own choices, but if someone has the ability to interfere with me, so the classic example here is like a sort of Roman slave with a very sort of, you know, bored or not engaged master, who basically lets the slave do whatever the slave wants. And so in that sense, right, this dispute about whether or not freedom is something that accrues to individual actions or to accrues to people as a sort of status is I think less directly applicable on this topic. It's one that like might be relevant, but I actually do think favors the af like does not go as far to favor the af of the neg as you might initially think. And so I originally thought civic republicanism was gonna be like a really important framing mechanism. And the more I've been researching, the less convinced I am that it's actually cuts across anything that's particular. Because if you have a sort of civic republican view of positive freedom, you'll end up from, if you have a civic republican view of negative uh, freedom or negative liberty, you'll probably still end up negating. And so I think to the extent there's a sort of philosophical dispute here, it's that prior one about positive and negative liberty in Berlin's sense, and not the sort of further question about if freedom is a question of status or a question of actions. Interesting. N never thought of it that, that deeply. I, I just seem like when you Google civic republicanism plus compulsory voting, all of the articles ended up turning up AF. Actually, this is a good point for like debate purposes. Um, if you Google civic republicanism and compulsory voting, that's going to turn up AF, but that's not actually, like, that's mostly just because there isn't an interesting paper to be written about why civic republicanism negates, right? That paper would just be, 
if you're a civic Republican, you generally don't want to force people to pursue certain political values. It's just like such a basic, uninteresting argument that there's like no one who's out there trying to get an interesting academic paper published saying such a thing. And so I think there's like one of the things you have to remember when you do research is like academic biases distort what the academic literature looks like, such that like more interesting or seeming like published worthy things are the kind of positions that get defended. Um, this is why like academic literature tends towards greater extremes than policymakers do. Like part of it's because like academics, the incentive structures for academics are to sillier views, because if you can make a good argument for a sillier view, it's more interesting to publishers than if you can make a sensible, reasonable argument for an obvious sort of sounding position. And the obvious sort of sounding position that, look, if you care about not dominating people, maybe don't force them to vote. Uh, is just not interesting enough to be the sort of subject of, I think, substantial publications. But imagine if you would like interview most civic Republicans who like are actual civic Republicans who have a bit about the topic, they'd be like, yeah, probably don't force people to vote. That seems like a bad idea. So it's just too obvious to be written. Right. There's like not interesting sort of, right. and, and most civic Republicans are also not reading up in the political philosophy uh, about compulsory voting, right? They're reading like, like civic Republicanism is primarily a sort of view espoused by certain philosophers who are not actually doing that much of the sort of like political theory, like compulsory voting discussions. And so I just think like there probably is not a lot of civic Republicans out there who've noticed that there's like these six political science people who've like taken this view of civic Republicanism and published this article about like these articles about compulsory voting. Uh, but yeah, I, my guess is that most civic Republicans would sort of not meaningfully lean AF any more than most uh, sort of political philosophers would or anything of that sort. I think it's also just worth noting from a sort of philosophical standpoint that voting and democracy are sort of very deeply linked, right? Voting is a sort of, it is the mechanism by which democracy operates. And to the extent that the AF can sort of really sell the idea that, uh, basically, so I was reading this one interesting article that was basically just saying, we should think about voting a lot more like jury duty. Um, and I thought this was like a really useful sort of and now, like, I just think the AF should be setting up their AF with an analogy to jury duty. Uh, partially, this is because it's always strategically useful to flip the status quo bias in the judge's mind. And most judges have, will have a status quo bias against compulsory voting. But then they'll be like, ooh, well, does it really make sense to force people to vote? Most judges will also have a status quo bias against saying people no longer have to show up to jury duty. And so using that analogy will help sort of flip the status quo bias for judges. But also, I think it sort of reveals something philosophically important, which is those parts of life which we think are, or those sort of parts of democratic participation, which we think are not just sort of a way to exercise your own power, but sort of integral and necessary to how your society works or how your government operates. It's more plausible to think those are the sort of things that we can meaningfully compel. Things like paying taxes make sense because there just like is no like legislative or executive power without that. Jury duty makes sense because there is no such thing as sort of the judicial system as we've set it up without forcing people onto juries. And I think an argument that uses that sort of thought to frame what's going on with uh, voting is helpful. I haven't found any like philosophers who actually like made this argument explicitly. I have found some philosophers who are like, someone should make this argument. It seems like I found one footnotes like, this seems like a super interesting argument for why a Kantian would affirm. I hope someone writes this paper soon. It also interesting reframes interestingly reframes the negative argument about uninformed voters. That doesn't seem to matter for juries where it's seeming that like they, no one has legal expertise on a jury. Yep. Hmm. I actually remember back the last time this topic came up in 2013, um, one of the, the kids I was coaching wanted to write a, a Conti and F and he asked you know, Professor Christine Korsgaard you know, what she thought about compulsory voting. 
Uh, and she gave an answer a lot along those lines. Uh, it, was, it was just like, well, look, I mean, one might initially think that, oh, compulsion, violation of freedom, you know, Kantian would hate that. Um, but as a matter of fact, being a citizen is a political office, just like being a legislator. And so it comes with certain duties. And it is plausible, at least, to think of the duty to vote as being like, that's the sort of individual citizen's contribution to the political office that they hold by virtue of being a citizen. And so you have no you know, inherent right not to vote anymore than you have like a right not to show up to jury duty. And so I don't think she went so far as to say like, there is in fact a sort of obligation to have compulsory voting, but just that compulsory voting would at the very least not necessarily infringe upon one's liberties insofar as one doesn't have a liberty not to perform a required duty of them. And it could just be that being a citizen comes with the obligation to vote along with the obligation to like serve on juries and so forth. All right, cool. Uh, neg arguments then? Right, so Chris just mentioned probably one of the two more common stock neg arguments on the topic. So that one being the sort of uninformed voters NC. Um, I think the person who most prominently makes this argument is Jason Brennan. Um, but you also find like a few other sort of Cato Institute people running around there that suggest that like the average person who doesn't vote is particularly uninformed and they're like worse than ignorant. They're just systematically misinformed about everything and forcing them to vote will lead to like worse quality leaders, worse quality government. And so these individual people have a duty not to vote and policies that encourage them to vote or force them to vote are, are problematic on grounds for democracy because democracy, you know, is worsened by these poor voters. I, I, that's I think kind of just loosely the argument can be summed up as like, wow, these people aren't smart. Why are they voting? I'm not sure how compelling I find this argument. On the one hand, it's like, you know, it is true that the average voter probably doesn't care too much about politics. Uh, I can't plausibly see that as like a particularly strong reason not to have compulsory voting, but I, what are y'all's views on this argument? I think that it works really well. If the negative wins the framing that, as Marshall pointed out, a lot of us seem to, to be voluntarily adopting for themselves unstrategically, which is that the, the function of democracy and the function of voting in democracy is just to arrive at the, the right decisions. You know, what we really want is just a, a democracy in which everyone um, comes together because that's the most effective way of making decisions. And so you could easily say, well, look, if we've got this sort of natural system where people who know they're not informed sort of like voluntarily self-exclude, like, you know, like, you know, Chris with the animal rights referendum, which is like, I, I don't know, I'm not going to bother casting an uninformed opinion, then that might actually sort of improve the process and making everyone vote, even if they otherwise might just be like, I don't know, I don't care, I'll leave it up to other people, might end up sort of distorting that process, especially if that group of people sort of like systematically biased in one particular direction or another. And I think that the negative would want to argue for that conception of democracy. The main value of democracy is just um, arriving at better conclusions and that there's no sort of like inherent value in like the participation of governance in and of itself, because that framing is gonna make the uninformed voting less, argument less strong, because whether they're making like a good decision or bad decision, they are participating. And so then the NEG wants to say, ultimately it's about the outcome rather than the, uh, than the, the process. And I think that'll be the more consequentialist take on the topic. This in general was the sort of, sort of strategic issue I have with the bad voting position, which is it strikes me as like a totally correct argument, but only if there are no correct affirmative arguments. In this sense, right? Like, if you were to reverse the status quo here and think, rather than doing something that's going to increase the amount of bad voters, should we instead adopt a policy which will systematically exclude bad voters, right? Um, you know, uh, just require, you know, you to like read a bunch of articles before showing up to the polls, with the thought being that, you know, people who, you know, want to do that extra work are then going to improve. In this way, we, like, we do not allow people who we expect to be worse voters from voting. Like, that's really bad, right? And, like, we know from, like, 
American history that things like literacy tests are just like directly terrible, both because they're like used for incredibly racist purposes. But I think most people think like even if they were being used in a sort of good faith effort to improve the quality of the vote, there's something deeply undemocratic about doing so. And so the problem with these positions is they seem plausible only because we have this intuition our current system is not undemocratic in some sort of substantial way. Right. If you were to think that there was something undemocratic about not forcing people to vote, then the thought that it'll increase the number of bad voters, I think, should be pretty similar to thinking we should do this other undemocratic thing to decrease the current number of bad voters. And that strikes me as a sort of very dubious trade off for any democracy to be uh, in the business of making. And so once the sort of negative flips the sort of status quo bias and points out that, look, we would never take these arguments to justify doing something proactively undemocratic to exclude a particular perspective uh, because we think those people will vote poorly then likewise, it means that the negative has a sort of very large defensive burden to answering the act before this argument plays the role the negative wants it to play. And I think one thing worth pointing out is that Brennan does not like democracy. Like he has a book called Against Democracy. His whole point is that like democracy can only be justified on epistemic grounds. And he also thinks that democracy fails to justify itself on epistemic grounds. So I think it's very unsurprising that he arrives at this conclusion, that many other people who are critical of democracy arrive at this conclusion. And you're not going to find very many people that are like pro-actual democracy who are like, yes, exclude the, the poor and the minority communities and the uneducated communities that, you know, in the United States, we deliberately make that way uh, from voting. That's really democratic. And I don't think you're going to find very many philosophers that really jump in that direction. Right. From a strategic standpoint, this is the sort of NC, which I think requires you to, I, so basically this is the thought. The NC is really strategic against apps that were already unstrategic. Uh, apps that were not already setting up a sort of preclusive, a, a sort of framework argument that makes this negative not apply. It's a really good negative, uh, sort of at least turn against those apps. It's a really unstrategic NC otherwise, though, because you have to invest quite a bit of time on winning the framing mechanism. But the contention is not so neg biased as to make it worth investing all that time. Like the app just has a lot of turns here. Um, and it's not totally clear which direction the empirical literature is actually going to go in terms of the quality of the vote. And so I don't think from a strategic standpoint, it makes a whole lot of sense to invest a huge amount of time uh, winning the sort of merely epistemic view of what democracy is for if it's not going to give you a very clear substantive advantage on the contention level debate. And my read of the empirical literature is that it doesn't give you a huge advantage on the contention level debate such that unless the app's already going to grant you a sort of, if the app already has a framework that doesn't sort of give the app an advantage, then sure, go for it. But don't do a whole bunch of work to justify a framework that's not going to give you much of an advantage either. Um, it sets up a sort of 1AR reset for just like four minutes of turns to bad voting to be far too viable 1AR strategy against uh, negative. To um, something Marshall just said there, y'all can correct me if I'm wrong because you've seen more of these debates than I have. But when I've heard these arguments, it seems like a missing step is often, you know, they prove that there are people who don't vote now are largely uninformed, but the step from there to bad outcomes in terms of policy doesn't really seem to be justified in the empirical literature at all. Um, right. So you have and, these questions about, in particular, like, do the bad votes just mostly cancel out, right? Like at large enough sample sizes, you should expect sort of arbitrary influences to cancel out. So what you need is to say the certain systematic biases Right. And like, and here, like, there's a sort of an intuitive point, you know, bias operates at the margins, right? If I am grading uh, papers, my implicit bias is likely to mean I give white students an A plus or an A minus where I would have given the black student a B uh, plus, A minus plus B plus. It's very rarely going to make some big difference if I'm already confident sort of in the range, right? That's how implicit bias works. And so you might think the problem with uninformed voters is they're operating at the margins and therefore certain systematic biases that exist across society. The problem is also a lot of empirical literature that like 
the more you, the more steps in your reasoning, the more places there were for that bias to enter in. Like there's a lot of good evidence that like people who are better at reasoning tend to be better at rationalizing and allowing implicit biases to affect. Because the, like, you know, if I read one article on the subject, the first article I find is going to have a big influence. If I read 20, every time when I sort of partially decide if I'm going to trust this article, I get, I allow systematic more bias to enter into deliberation. It's just totally unclear. Uh, if the after the negative is right on this question. And I think a lot of the other sort of literature in political psychology complicates this story a little bit too. I think the story that the negative is trying to tell here is informed voters are better because they are better able to weigh the issues and make a choice on sort of substantive grounds. But most of the political psychology literature says that the more informed you are, that just correlates with how partisan you are and that the decision-making process around issues flows the opposite direction of how we think, that people sort of choose political partisanship around identity signifiers and affinity, and then change their substantive beliefs based on uh, the views of elites who share those, uh, those markers. And so informed voters are just more partisan voters, and partisan voters may in some ways have worse reasoning around how they reach their conclusion on substantive issues. The last thing I've noticed here is one of the things that's annoying is even if the negative wins, the sort of epistemic view of democracy, democracy is mostly useful to make good decisions. Even people who think that don't generally think the primary influence of that is just like, oh, the people are going to select the best leaders. Really, the thing that democracy does to improve the quality of decisions is just act as an accountability mechanism so that politicians know they have to, for themselves, figure out the right policies. Not because people will be like, oh, man, you supported that policy? Well, given my views on modern monetary theory, I think that policy is probably bad. Just because like, if the economy is doing poorly, they're going to get voted out of office. So politicians are only accountable to outcomes. And they are bad voters are just as responsive to how they feel the economy is doing as people who've like, th- like, like, it's just like the, the point of democracy is really even people who think it's like this epistemic makes better policy is not generally will elect the best people into office, but just whoever gets elected into office is going to be accountable to results. Um, and will have an incentive to put a lot of time into making sure that they make the best decisions by consulting with a bunch of bureaucrats and policy experts. Uh, and, and that in, function and in general, might- how informed a voter is, does it have much of a uh, effect on, you know, whether or not they are able to see that unemployment is higher or COVID is out of control. Actually, it does uh, have an effect on go that. the opposite way, right. but they're more like, likely to be affected by those kind of things and thus, you know, more likely to act as uh, an accountability mechanism. Yeah, there's a lot of studies that were run doing, um, like sort of asking people to report during like the Clinton presidency about like how they thought like the stock market was doing or how they thought the inflation rate was. And people who didn't know anything about the subject were more accurate in those assessments because they had less data with which to rationalize their partisan preferences. Well, look um, at the, the polls around the economy that happened in 2016, right? Where you can see Republicans go from on November 1st, 20% of them think the economy is good to like 90% by January. Um, like that, <laughs> right? With no objective changing conditions. And that shows that partisanship can which is correlated with how informed you are, can actually lead you to making less accurate sort of um, measurements or uh, assessments right. of and objective conditions. Is, right, strongly correlated with who's going to voluntarily choose to vote. So you don't even need the inform. You don't even need the inform. This is just like a direct independent link there to more partisan people are more likely to vote voluntarily. And so if we want to decrease the number, of, like the amount of the partisan perspective is the dominant one in the political discourse, uh, compulsory voting seems effective there. All right. So it seems like then the second main negative argument on this topic is just like, why are you making me do stuff, man? I don't want to do this. And so just some variation of compulsion bad. Uh, It seems to me that there are like a bunch of different flavors slash variations of this. Like you get the sort of people that are just like broadly compulsion is unjustified, 
burden of proof is on the app to prove that it is justified. Here's like defensive reasons to suggest it's not to the like people that defend a very strong right not to vote. Do we want to start somewhere on that spectrum? Yeah, I guess one thing to say is weirdly, I feel like the, the neg argument for liberty, to my mind at least, and y'all can see if you disagree, you get stronger the less philosophically sophisticated your conception of liberty is. Like if you don't have some formal definition of liberty and like why it matters and how it matters, but just sort of like a general, come on, I don't like being forced to do things by the government. Uh, and then you just say, I, like, I don't want to have to go do random things or pay a fine. That's just like in and of itself an increasing bureaucracy. Maybe not all bureaucracy is wrong, but at the very least it sets up sort of a strong presumptive argument. We shouldn't make people go do a bunch of things they don't want to do an increased number of government regulations and people to enforce that and time spent doing all that and people having to pay fines and just all the hurdles that come along with compelling people to do things, unless there's a strong reason. And then that position I think would probably still require you to win some defense to the app, that there's not a compelling reason to do that. Um, but at the very least, I think it, it does just make a, a, a decent sort of like, I guess not presumption or it's just like, it, unless you have a good reason to make people do this thing. If I can prove that like it's not effective at whatever goal the F sets out, then we definitely shouldn't make people do that. I think that's just like a decent arg, regardless of any deep philosophical conception of liberty. I kind of agree with that. I, as much as I like hate to say, don't go for the philosophically deep libertarian argument because it's less philosophically interesting. It just like, like, to, like, I think I probably would like believe we should not compel people to vote. And it's lucky for that reason. Like I'm unconvinced by any of the F arguments. Like I think there's probably like other democratic reforms that would probably work out as well. And just like, don't force people to do things without like a, like a reasonably high burden of proof. Like, this generally seems like the sort of, I, I think the one sort of interesting sort of philosophical element to add to this is that you want to make arguments about, it doesn't really matter how large a liberty violation it is, in fact, because we might not trust the government to assess how much of the sort of imposition does this place on other people. A nice example of this is to think about these things in terms of like religious exemptions, right? So people who uh, sort of feel like they have religious reasons not to participate in governments. One thing we might not want the government to be involved in is deciding how, like, we don't, we, like, like, do I think Anabaptist political philosophy actually says you can't, like, should not even submit a spoiled ballot? No, I think like probably like as best I understand, my sort of understanding of Anabaptist political theology says submitting a spoiled ballot is not any worse than just not voting. At the same time, I'm not sure I want the government making that decision. I'm not sure I want the government, you know, in the business of deciding how big of a sort of liberty violation is this, unless there is sort of pressing need to engage in this policy. The sort of, if it's like controversial or unclear how much of a liberty violation this is, part of what we want in sort of limiting government intrusion is that we want people almost free to decide for themselves about what parts of their liberty are indeed important. That there's a sort of like meta liberty here, a sort of meta, like a sort of liberal principle that says, Individuals should be able to decide even for themselves what sorts of coercion are particularly troubling, unless it's the sort of coercion that really just is really important for society to function, and that just doesn't seem true yet. Um, yeah, so I think like tossing in like examples about like religious liberty and things are useful, but primarily just as a sort of bulwark against, you know, it's a sort of way to make the sort of meta liberty claim that we don't even want the government deciding how legitimate the liberty appeal is here, because we don't want the government sort of authenticity testing values and stuff where possible. Just connecting two arguments that have been mentioned so far, I think, and I think Marshall actually alluded to this for a second at the start, is I think that argument actually pairs really well with the smorgasbord counterplan that Chris was talking about a while back, where you just list off a series of sort of, you know, perhaps individually insignificant reforms to make voting easier and less costly on individuals, like, you know, changing when the voting day is and so forth. And you say, well, look, you know, 
if we have enough reforms and checks in place to make sure that every individual who wants to vote has an easy enough time to vote and no one's systematically excluded by like, you know, problems getting to the polls or registering and so forth, and then that does enough to make sure that we get a representative sample of the population. And then that's enough that compelling the rest of the people who still just don't want to vote anyway ends up being unjustified. And I think it works well because A, most of those forms aren't increasing compulsion, right? They're sort of just removing barriers to voluntary participation. And then B, like we were saying, I think this argument does require uh, some amount of defense to the F. You know, I think people like when their, their neg case can just be like, this is the one and only issue that matters. If I show that, you know, seatbelts violate liberty, then you just vote neg right there. But, you know, realistically, you know, a lot of these arguments, and I think on this topic in particular, um, if the, the, the justification were pressing enough, then it could justify like making someone do something. And so I think that that liberty argument ends up being a lot stronger if you have a decent degree of defense to the app as well in the form of like, well, look, there's other non-compulsive, compelling, not, not, not mandatory ways to, to get people to do this thing. Um, Are you looking for the word compulsory? <laughs> I, I wanted another word for it other than just compulsory so as to not just use the topic mm. word. Um, and I guess mandatory is probably the, the closest I'll get. But like, if you can do it without mandating it, uh, then you should just do it those other ways. I think it's also worth noting that to the extent that one sort of shares a sort of broad commitment to a sort of liberal ideology, just in sort of broad terms, it's almost always better to have the government in position of having to woo people rather than being able to force people. Like if the government really thinks voting is important, as much as possible, we should make the burden on government to convince people it's worth their time to vote rather than allow them to sort of bypass that need to justify. Like if we think voting is so important, then part of what we might want is for the government to then have to justify to everyone why they should vote rather than be able to bypass that sort of justificatory phase. Because when like we can just force people to vote, the government no longer has to justify why voting is particularly important and maintaining that sort of justificatory element to government coercion is something that a lot of liberals are gonna think is important as liberals in the classical sense. Um, now that having been said, that does remind me of an argument that I, I think will be common, but will not be especially strong, which is just like people have this right not to vote because not voting is itself an act of political expression. And people make this argument. You'll find that a decent number of, I think, neg authors uh, object to compulsory voting. Like people should have the ability to say no to, to voting to show like this taste for government. And I just, I have not come across a good argument that suggests that like the blank ballots just wouldn't solve that. Like if you're uh, insisting on like, I don't want to vote for either candidate because I refuse to endorse either candidate. Uh, like we said at the very outset, the app just doesn't make you do that. You could show up to the ballot place and write in nobody or turn and, it on the ballot. Some places, Nevada comes to mind, have a none of the above option. Right. I, and so that, that sort of expressive element of just like, I refuse to vote could still exist in the world of the affirmative. And I think that at least sets up a decent backstop against just like, a lot of the negargs that are going to take the form of people want the ability to show discontent with the government because, well, they can still be discontent and look at these well, the parties if they don't like it. That's true to a certain degree. And I think a, a weaker form of the argument that says, like, if I don't like either of the candidates, I can spoil my ballot. What if your political ideology is such that you are more fundamentally opposed to the electoral system and the political system that exists in a country, right? Maybe you are fundamentally opposed to the idea of democracy. Uh, I think you have this problem where it's, not at all obvious to me that a spoiled ballot is less symbolic than a refusal to vote. So for I, example, I might just say like, oh, look at all these people who aren't even bothering to vote. 
that signifies that they are incredibly satisfied with how the government is working to the point that they don't even feel the need to like, you know, register their own opinion to tip it one way or the other. They're fine that it produces good outcomes for them. And so just simply not turning to the polls, I think is not always a particularly strong expression one way or the other. And you might argue the contrary that, well, if they were forced to show up to the polls, they actually ended up in the ballot booth and still cast a blank ballot. Maybe that's a stronger signal of dissatisfaction. And I'm not sure that that link turn like in the offensive sense is true, but at the very least, I think the defensive version of the argument that like there's no clear larger expression of not voting at all compared to spoiling your ballot does seem pretty persuasive to me. The, the issue I have with that reply and the thing that makes me sort of sympathetic to this line of negative attack is I don't want the government in the business of deciding what my replacement speech gets to be. Like, I don't want the government deciding actually Marshall, you're like, so, so I had a phase, like I, like, like Marshall's version of the rebellious phase in college was like, I got really deep into Anabaptist political theology and was like, oh goodness, maybe there's just like no way to reconcile a Christian identity with a like American citizen identity, right? And was like very moved by these thoughts that like, as long as I think they're like undocumented Christian immigrants who are unable to sort of make uh, use of these sort of political rights, there's something wrong in me sort of participating in that system as well. Um, I, I don't, I no longer think this was a sort of particularly plausible sort of theological view, but it was like during that time, I would have thought it quite compelling that it would as a sort of violation of my religious freedom or like, like the speech I wanted to make was one of in solidarity being in a similar sort of position as those who are disenfranchised and not one of going and voting a protest ballot, because that also is something the disenfranchised were unable to do. Now, was this a particular, like, like, would a protest ballot have been just as effective? Probably, right? I'm just not sure I want the government deciding, actually, Marshall, I know this is the speech you wanted to make. And this was the sort of political value that you had. But we think that this other way is just as good a way to express it. So it's not a significant infringement on your sort of speech or liberty to not be able to make the sort of statement that as you wanted to make it or as you understood it important to say. Yeah, I think all of these sorts of arguments kind of rely on these really hard to verify and judge questions of how not voting or spoiling ballots would be broadly viewed as a, what it would be a signal of, which I think we just have no way of really knowing. I think, for example, my intuition, Jacob, of a spoiled ballot is most likely that it's a mistake, not that it's some sort of political statement. We have tons of spoiled ballots in status quo, and it's usually the result of like, errant marks on a ballot or like not filling an oval or checking it instead of filling it. And we don't get like a breakdown of blanks versus misfilled out forms and things like that. The none of the above option could solve that, for example, mm-hmm. like if the app just wants to clarify that their version of compulsory voting gives you a none of the above option and that solves the like ballot couldn't be read issue. All right, I think maybe the last sort of big group of neg arguments are just the various counter plans on this topic. Um, so I think we've already mentioned a few. Uh, so we have two different versions of the sortition counterplan. The one mentioned at the beginning, which is like select the electors by lottery. And then the, another version, which is to as- select the uh, officials by lottery. Um, and then we have all of these various reforms like holidays, um, maybe automatic voter registration or like the opt out. Um, and then just like other things like incentives and just pay people to vote and stuff like that. Um, are there any particular counterplans that are like interesting and worth discussing in more detail? Yeah, sure. So first, while we're on the topic of lotteries, a, a third lottery counterplan that I recall showing up on the last instantiation of this topic was one that just said, essentially, uh, everyone who votes is entered into a lottery and you, you might win money if you vote. And just uh, that's how you get people out to the polls. Or you could do it in a non-lottery based fashion, like everyone gets like a fixed like monetary incentive, like they pay you some amount. 
Uh, I'm not sure what, like, maybe the lottery system is more or less psychologically compelling on people. But basically, the idea being uh, positive incentives rather than compulsion. And you argue that, you know, perhaps, for example, that's less of an infringement upon liberty. And again, I think that's an argument that's going to work better with the, the less philosophically robust conception of liberty. Because if you think about it too hard, you're like, wait, well, we're still taxing people to pay for these incentives, still technical violation of liberty. But if you just paint it in sort of like a pragmatic sense of like, people don't like it when you make them do things, people like it when you pay them to do things, then maybe just sort of a, a, a way that is equally effective at getting turnout, but less uh, upsetting to most people is just to like, you know, smooth the wheels of voting by paying them a little bit to show up. Uh, and so that's one version of, I think, of a counter plan that you might see. Is that like kind of plan is also good because I think it's the best counter plan against the sort of free rider, free rider ass, um, because it flips the political, it flips the private incentive, so that it's no longer in your rational self-interest to opt out, which is another way of solving the free rider problem. Uh, and so I do think like, if you want to go for the sort of coercion ENC, I would use that counter plan probably only really if I were dealing with the sort of free rider AF, because you can use the free rider arguments to justify this sort of coercion and then say, but it's a whole lot better to just tax people since, you know, rather than like force speech or force a sort of political mm -hmm. participation, which is sort of value laden in a way that I uh, just not have, right? Like, like, this is it, right? Like a lot of people think there's a sort of like important difference between, you know, the government forcing me to use my money a certain way and the government just letting me have less of my money in total, right? Similarly, you might think that, right? Like, so there are ways I think to make this sort of principled against the free rider AF, but it's a large counter plan to reconcile with the coercion and see otherwise. Right. But in terms of turnout argument the app might be making, it seems pretty intuitive. I mean, there's obviously psychological effects here that might go one way or the other, that offering someone $200 to vote is a similar incentive to fining them $200 if they don't vote. My guess is the no? psychology probably goes the other way. Yeah. People are well, is irrationally there, is there disposed to not Is there empirical literature on this? There yeah. is empirical... Uh, I don't know any empirical literature about the payment counter plan on this topic in particular, but there are lots of... Top, like, there's been a lot of empirical investigation about like coercion versus incentives. Uh, so there's been stuff about... like like A lot of stuff about um, organ donations and like paying people for these... Right, and, like. Pay, like you have to pay people sometimes like 10 times as much as you threaten to find them before you have anywhere near the degree uh, of compulsion because people are so loss adverse. Like the idea of losing $20 is much more psychologically painful than the idea of not winning $150 for most humans. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, this is a decent response <laughs> for sure. Plus like the crowd out effect stuff suggests that like threatening people just isn't effective or, or paying people isn't very effective either. Uh, sorry, no. threatening people is fine. Um, it's, it's apparently paying people that's wrong. So it's like, uh, like blood donations were voluntary in Britain. Then they started paying people for blood donations and all of a sudden blood, blood donation rates dropped. And you're like, what? We were offering you money. Whereas before you were just giving to us for free. Um, and, and there's some like crowd out effects here. At play. Yeah. And then they start, the really sad thing is then they stopped paying people and the donation did not go back up. Uh, <laughs> it was just like a permanent effect by the experiment uh, in that county. Another counter plan that I think will be relevant is, and I guess this requires first prefacing it by saying the AF argument that it responds to. But I think a, a somewhat common AF argument that you'll find is that compulsory voting can have these sort of uh, add-on or spillover effects on other policies e.g. that if the government is requiring you to vote, then there's both sort of a legal constitutional as well as a, a practical incentive for the government to make it easy for you to vote. A, because if they have to waste time like implementing some system to like track you down and punish you, it makes it easier on them if they just don't bother in the first place to make that system hard, make it easy for you to comply. 
but then also sort of legally speaking, the courts you know, might have a stronger ability or incentive to rule against uh, obstacles to voting, laws that make it difficult to vote. On the grounds of voting is something that people have to do, you're making them do the thing, you can't also make it harder for them to do the thing. And so Birch, for example, Sarah Birch, uh, makes this argument in favor of compulsory voting that like, it might also serve as a backstop against other forms of voter disenfranchisement that we don't like, because it creates a stronger legal ground for challenging those. Anyways, the counter plan, which she herself suggests might be an example, is some sort of like sort of non-binding legal duty to vote, like not like a, in a sense of a legal mandate you must vote, but like suppose in our constitution we just acknowledged that there was a duty to vote in like a non-legal sense. It's like we believe citizens have the duty to vote. And so you get the same sort of like philosophical principle in your laws to give courts the ability to, to go and overrule or you know, legally challenge bad voting laws. And so I expect a thing that will happen somewhat often is like the AF is one of the means by which it solves will say something like uh, compulsory voting leads to rollback of like discriminatory voting laws or checks against new ones. And the NEG says counter plan sort of like duty to vote as like a purely like legal philosophy principle in our law rather than an actual formal legislation so that that's legal precedent still exists to go at like an overrule other things, even if you don't actually have compulsory voting itself. Uh, and so that argument does show up. Uh, so one of my mentees has been reading a quadratic voting counter plan, which has been fun. So there's like lots of like random, super weird versions of democracy that various like people have suggested, a lot of which are incompatible with compulsory voting. And so there's all sorts of sort of like properly mutually exclusive counter plans that are options out there as well, which people can look into. Quadratic voting is the one that I think is most strategic for the ones I've seen so far. Do you want to define that? Oh, yeah. So quadratic voting is a system where uh, basically everyone gets a certain number of vote credits, right, each year, and then they can save up their vote credits or use them. Uh, and, and you can use, like cast as many ballots in any given election as you want based on what you can afford. It's just the cost of a uh, ballot is the number of ballot is, the, is vote credits. Basically, if you want to vote once, you have to use one vote credit. If you want to vote twice, you have to use four. If you want to vote three times, you have to use nine. If you want to vote 20 times, you have to vote four, use 400. So the cost and vote credits of a vote is the number of votes on that election squared. And so you can like just save up a lot of votes on for particular issues you care about and not vote in a bunch of elections which you don't want to participate in. Uh, and so like the whole system requires voting not being compulsory. The whole system requires you being able to just not use your ballots in any given election or any given referendum. And then any reasons why this is like a much, like there's lots of reasons saying this is like be much better because it would like account for like intensity of interest on various issues and would encourage more like local participation and would like prevent people like people like Trump from being elected because you have a much stronger incentive to vote against certain politicians or to split your vote because it's like really expensive to keep voting for one person. But if you like split your votes amongst all the like tolerable candidates you'll have a lot of people splitting their votes amongst the tolerable candidates, which creates a much better sort of system than like if all the like people who only want Trump's focus all of their ballots at a much more expensive cost on voting for like the more demagogic candidate. So there's like lots of benefits out there that people cite for quadratic voting. Uh, it's really radical. Uh, like the book that I first came across this is a hilarious book called Radical Markets, which is just a really fun book because it's like you're like a free market capitalist, but is willing to be like as radical in restructuring society as like the most far out communist. Like imagine you like had none of the sort of like conservative scruples about like not changing society too much. So you're like, you're like a conservative, but not at all conservative, like a sort of incredibly radical person committed to free markets. Uh, it's just like, what would society look like on such a vision? It's an amazing book. But- Is that the book where like your house gets auctioned every year? 
Not a, yeah, just you know, so the book says private property is a monopoly, and yes. so you're just always renting all of your property from society for a particular price. So you get to set the price of your own property, right? So I can just like set the price of my house, and I just pay taxes on whatever I set that price to be. But someone can buy it from you at any time, but someone can price. buy it from me at any time, and so I have an incentive to both not have it low enough because I put it too low just so I pay low taxes, anyone can just buy it from I me. I love anytime. this idea, and if I put it too high, I'm paying too high in taxes, and so it deals with the fact that all property is a like unjust monopoly by just making property ownership gone um the book is amazing i highly recommend reading the book it's one of the most fun books of political theory and economic theory i've ever read um but yeah quadratic voting uh would be a counterpoint the last thing i wanted to, to mention briefly was i imagine there'll pe be people who are trying to find like good big impacts on this topic and unfortunately i think that this is not not the best topic for just like big stick advantage or anything like that uh, and so they're not great. That being said, like I was thinking about like, supposing like I'm like, I'm most pressingly concerned with existential risk. What would I think about compulsory voting? And I, I think at least my most plausible answer would be something like this, which is like a decent portion of people who are very concerned with existential risks are, are concerned largely with things like unknown unknowns that are like, coming in the future and we don't know how to deal with them yet. Or even things that like we know will be a problem, but we, we don't think that we're presently set up to be able to, you know, to, to solve that problem now. E.g. like what happens when AI or nanotech eventually rolls around? How do we deal with that? And maybe the best thing we can do now, given that the technology doesn't exist, we don't know how to make it, we don't know how to like prevent it, is just to set up sort of good institutions with good checks and balances that will then be able to effectively regulate and oversee the development of nanotech and AI when they happen. And so I think you'll find a decent number of people argue that sort of a, the urgent short-term priority for people concerned with existential risk is to sort of like get our house in order now before the AI guest arrives. And unfortunately, I don't know that directly affirms and negates, but what I think it might do is just sort of like impact out other framework arguments you might want to be making anyway, e.g. that sort of like the effective of de effectiveness of democracy as an institution is the primary concern. And maybe for example, that could give weight to either like the AF args about more representative democracy or the NAG args about uninformed voting over sort of direct like liberty concerns, like people get sad when you make them do things just because like we, we have the need to make democracies really effective at like dealing with unforeseen threats because eventually they'll happen and then we'll need governments that are good to deal with that. Even if it like makes people sad that they have to vote. I think is my take on like how X risk might go. And I guess one final thought we haven't touched about too much, but I think it's really important for like understanding the literature is to think about what the impact of compulsory voting has more on the sort of like behavior of politicians, both in terms of like who, what constituencies they're appealing to and like how campaigns work. Cause it's not totally clear to me, which of these, like on the one hand, it's bad when politicians just pander to like likely voters, right? And that sort of creates a distortive effect. But the other sorts of distortions you might also worry about in particular, like some of the distortions that occur around like captured voting blocks. So sometimes people talk about how, you know, African-Americans so overwhelmingly vote for democratic politicians that the real incentive democratic politicians have to do pol to adopt policies that are helpful to black communities is not really to like make sure the black people vote for Democrats rather than Republicans, but to increase enthusiasm amongst black voters in the first place. But if enthusiasm was suddenly like no longer a relevant consideration, it's not totally clear to me like that the Democratic Party has nearly as strong an incentive to adopt policies to encourage black turnout, because it's not like they're really worried that a lot of black people are going to end up voting for Republicans. Likewise, like, you know, politicians on the right are going to care a lot about judges, not necessarily because they're worried that any Christ like evangelical Christians are going to go vote for the Democrats, but because they're really worried that evangelical Christians are not going to turn out to vote.
And so I think this is an interesting way that like captured voting blocks work with compulsory voting because things like enthusiasm actually are sometimes an important proxy to encourage political accountability and leadership and things of that sort. And so thinking, like, I think there's a really good argument about the AF and the NEG for the way that like politician incentives change for the better or for the worse, depending on uh, how sort of voting blocks end up, uh, depending on how much enthusiasm matters, whether or not people show up to vote or not. All right, let's call it there. When we come back, we'll do our conclusion segment. All right, that's our episode. Hopefully this was helpful as you think through uh, how to prep the compulsory voting topic. Um, and remember to please submit your episode suggestions, mailbag questions, or feedback with us at the form linked in the description. And finally, thanks again to Victor Brees for sponsoring this episode. Now our guest Marshall has a media recommendation for us this week. Take it away. So first of all, I'm just gonna to toss out that every debater should be required to be Plato's Gorgias. Uh, that is a book everyone should be required to read. It's not my recommend, well, it is my deep recommendation, but it's not the recommendation I'm actually going to give here. Instead, uh, the recommendation I'm going to give is uh, people should just find lots of podcasts they like. Uh, it's a podcast in general. I like to read a lot of books. The problem is I don't have the, like, I think that depth is important in your understanding, but increasingly in society, it's sort of just useful, especially for debaters, I think, to have a pretty broad understanding of lots of perspectives. And I think having a sort of pretty good set of podcasts about society from a range of perspectives would be really useful. And I think this like includes like listening to a range of different voices on sort of both the right and the left, for instance, in American politics. Um, because I think that yeah, like being generally informed is more useful for debate than going really, really, so going really deep on a couple things is really useful, but then sort of complementing going really deep on a couple things with very broad understanding of society uh, is much easier to get from podcasts, I find, than reading the newspaper or than reading books. So just podcasts in general after you finish reading Plato's Gorgias for the fifth time. Um, but first you should, you know, read Plato's Gorgias several times through with careful annotation and deep sort of consideration of how it affects how you live your life, because it should just be required reading for all debaters. All right. I'm pretty sure Marshall has recommended I read Gorgias at least like a, a two dozen times at this point in time. Have you um, read it? No. All right. That's our episode. Thanks all for listening. No, nope, this yeah. is the only reason he has not previously recommended the Gorgias because he has not read it yet. Had he read it by now, he already would have been recommending it at the end of every single one of these episodes. <laughs>